Hi, welcome to Everyday Women. I'm Allison Bunker. And I'm Malva Kopavin. And today we are here with Abigail Hundley. She is a history teacher at our school. So Ms. Hundley, the first question that we ask all our guests is, if you could design the perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich, what would it be? Probably no peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of nut like butter bread, would you substitute? Yeah, what, yeah, what? I think probably almond. Ooh, almond butter? I like almond butter. It's like a little richer. It definitely has more flavor to it. And it has to be really good whole wheat bread with kind of like little things, those little seeds. Oh, in it. I hate the seeds. And <laughs> oh, no. I like, you know, high quality jam, mm -hmm. not jelly. No jelly. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I'm not particular. It's a very Pacific Northwest butter <laughs> yeah, jelly. So. I like bananas on there. Oh, I, I, I prefer I, honey I, and bananas to any jam, actually. Really? Yeah. Honey and bananas. All right, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, when you were in high school and college, did you think you were going to be a teacher? Uh, early high school, probably not, because I was very into the arts. So I was spending hours and hours playing my instrument, singing, dancing, doing drama. Wow. So I think initially I thought I was going to do musical comedy. I don't think I was foolish enough to think I was going to play violin um, <laughs> professionally, because living in New York, you're quite aware of how limited your talents are compared to other people. But I really enjoyed being in the Youth Symphony, and we got to play in Carnegie Hall, oh, so wow. it was really cool. Is music something that's like stayed in your life since then, or? It has. Um, I don't have a group right now, mm -hmm. and oddly, I've ended up with a bunch of non-singers in my life, and so <laughs> I'm mostly on my own. The dog mm -hmm. is super appreciative. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. my sister I think she probably my family's not huge musicians but she's really into singing and so she definitely is a little on her own in that but I like listening yeah. to her in the shower so yeah I, I do a lot of car singing yeah oh I like car singing yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so another question I have for you is I think a lot of people tend to think history is just a skill one has um but you've talked like a lot in class about how many of the historical skills you have are very much acquired. So like, what do you say to the students that find history kind of frustrating um, and see it as a skill that they, that they can't acquire, that they cannot acquire? I think part, part of the frustration is not being able to see the connections between what's going on right now and history. In other words, why history, why bother to do something that's challenging and my journey into really getting into history was precisely that, uh, having decided that I was not going to be an artist, mm -hmm. I next thought was that I was going to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. And as I was getting involved in that, I realized that if I didn't know the history of the issues and places I was reporting on, I had really nothing of any depth to say. So I started actually going backwards and mm -hmm. That's kind of how I ended up there. So I think, first of all, current events is a really good opening gambit. If you care about the world around you, then you should know how it got to be the way that it is. Yeah. And then in terms of the actual skills, I think we're losing our commitment to actually reading. And I think that's what a lot of students struggle with, is that you have to read texts that are perhaps not immediately compelling. Yeah. And you're taking responsibility for the story that you want to learn about as opposed to being provided 
a story by a novel. Mm -hmm. uh, I love novels, so it's not like I don't think that's <laughs> important reading as well, although apparently people aren't reading novels either. Um, but I, I think for me, developing that skill to actually read and discern on my own, to know that I need a variety of sources to really get what's going on, even as a slow reader and to a certain degree a slow processor, I find it's worthwhile to go through those steps. Mm -hmm. And I, because I'm not innately talented in this regard, I think I, I don't think any of my students are incapable because, you know, if I had listened to my high school history teacher, I would not have gone to college. He told me I wasn't college material. So, I mean... I think that you can access what you want to access and the skills will come because you're committed to developing them and obviously I think everybody should try to develop them because yeah. I think we're in the mess we're in right now because yeah. people don't know their history. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Going off of that, um, you've been a teacher for a while so how has kind of your, I guess your philosophy on teaching changed from when you were younger to now? That's complicated. I um, when I first started teaching, I was in a school in New York City, in Brooklyn actually, that was incredibly selective and the students were not necessarily in my discipline, but amazingly talented. And a lot of them were amazingly talented in my general discipline. Um, we had a writing program that started pre-K. Um, we had, of the 10, young writers who were selected each year to be celebrated, we always had at least one. And so I learned very quickly not to be intimidated by people that were smarter than I was even in the classroom. I mean, that had already yeah. happened at Columbia. I enjoy being around people who are smarter than I am in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I still think I have something to contribute. So I was when I was surrounded by a group of students who perhaps could have run circles around me, I never felt like I didn't have something to offer, mm -hmm. and I never felt like I should compete with them or try to know everything. So in fact, very early on in my career, I was never embarrassed by saying, oh, I don't really know that. Why don't we look it up, or why don't we figure that out, or what would be a yeah. logical solution to that question? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really understand why people, the like teachers feel weird about that. So that was one of the lessons I think I carried with me. Um, when I got to Overlake, since I'd been in actually two different systems, there was St. Anne's and then I also worked for uh, Prep 9, which was part of Prep for Prep, which was working with gifted and talented kids of color to get them into more appropriate school settings. Mm -hmm. um, so I had been taught to work with super, super smart people. And I got to Overlake and it was a, a different scenario. Um, frankly, a lot of the people thought they were super gifted and weren't necessarily. And that was a challenge. Because it's kind of typical of that community as well. <laughs> my attitude was, well, you know, like me, you, you surround yourself with really smart people. You, you read really good books. You think deep thoughts. And eventually, you're going to be smart. So You fake it till you make it. <laughs> exactly. And I, I'm a master at faking it till I make it. Mm -hmm. So I had a definite teaching style, which was, you know, suck it up and get your act together. Mm -hmm. And 
that worked well for a lot of students because I was always willing to give scaffolding. It wasn't like <laughs> I just expected you to like yeah. intuit whatever it was I was asking you to do. Uh, when I got here, um, there was definitely a sense initially when I got here, the goal was to take perhaps average students and help them realize their full potential, which meant a lot of dragging kids along until they got where they needed to be. Yeah. And for the most part at that point, that was the ethos. I think that's changed over time. And whether for better or worse, uh, there's less hoisting up and more um, I don't know, modifying. And to a certain degree, I think you always meet somebody where they are, but I feel a little bit like the aspirational element of my teaching has not been as celebrated as in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my own personal experiences as a student of having to rise above some limitations, yeah. of, of having to, you know, make up for the fact that I was in a public school with 40 kids in the class mm -hmm. and I had not written a paper until senior year. All those things made it really hard to go to a selective private college. Yeah. So I don't want that for my kids. I don't want my kids to feel yeah. like they can't compete if they want to. And so sometimes there's a tension between I mean, I don't want to torture students, but on mm -hmm. the other hand, I don't want them to think that they're prepared for something they're not. Yeah. And yeah. so there's that constant tension here. Um, like when think, do you push and when do you say, okay, like a job? Yes. And that's that's hard because you you do know that you're sent. Like it's not like it's like they don't they're not going to be expected to do things in the future. Like you have to send them off somewhere to go yeah. face even harder challenges. Yeah, and I don't want them to think I'm giving up on them. Yeah, because sometimes that's the subliminal message. It's like, oh, Malika, you're so cute, honey. <laughs> right? Like, you can yeah, just be cute. Exactly. And I never want to do that to a kid because I feel like, in a, to a certain degree, that was done to me. It's also like you can be good at something else. Like, if you're not good at math, you can be good at history. If you're not good at English, you can be good at science. Like, it's kind of that either-or situation, which I think kind of needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also think, kind of going back to a point I made earlier about the idea of teachers not needing to know everything, I think that's super interesting because I feel like a lot of my teachers feel that they need to know everything they're teaching me, but some of my most incredible moments in my classes have been when the teacher and myself were looking into something and finding something out together, and like they didn't know the answer, but they were willing to, like they knew where yeah. to find it and how to figure it out and how to talk about it and how to elaborate on that more, and like that's the point, mm -hmm. less than having that knowledge in the first place, and so I think that's a super interesting aspect of learning and of teaching as well. Well, so I was going to be a college professor. Mm -hmm. That was what I was being groomed to do. I was in a PhD program. And uh, if I had been given that kind of an assignment where I taught the French Revolution, which I studied mm -hmm. for six years and was writing papers on <laughs> and such, then I probably could have at least passed myself off as knowing everything. But when you go to the secondary level and you're teaching courses on world history, like, yeah. you can't then you're, you're not being yeah. honest if you're mm -hmm. wanting your students to truly believe. And I wouldn't want them to believe that anyway because the notion that you can master the world and just stop studying is so horrifying to yeah. me. <laughs> 
I, what's the point? So, I mean, perhaps if I were in another discipline, that wouldn't be such an important part of my ethos, but. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, like in science, like you can learn all the physics that you would teach in high school and like you can just kind of know it. But like world history is always something more, like there's always another layer or another. Yeah question to ask like that's it's like from different perspectives point. too like everyone's gonna have a different question exactly like every event has four different that. ways it can be told and yeah. how you supposed to know all of them yeah, yeah. um all right so <laughs> moving on from teaching um you've traveled to a lot of different places for studying um and what are some of those trips that um have been the most i guess telling to you like do you have any stories about those mm-hmm. um well, let me backstory is I never thought I would leave the country ever. And in fact, leaving New York City, strangely, was highly unusual for kids in my class. Mm-hmm. Um, when my mom remarried and we had a little bit more money, we got to go to the beach for the weekend and things like that. Mm-hmm. But my dad's only left the country twice, once to go to war. And my mom's only left the country twice, once to be on a business trip with my dad, and once to go with me to visit my sister in London when she had a grant to be there. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of a sense that you would get out mm-hmm. and meet people. So books were super important to me, partially for that reason. But uh, my first opportunity, I started realizing that as a teacher, I could tap into resources that weren't available to other people as opposed to just saying, gosh, teachers don't make very much money, so I will not travel. And actually, one of the most important first trips for me was here in this country, going to New Mexico, where there was a, a mosque. A Muslim community had been developed. I'm not quite sure how it initially came together, but Saudi Aramco actually funded their mosque which was also a teaching facility, not just for the local kids, but Mm -hmm. also for teachers from around the country. And they brought from around the world all these different professors who were part of Islamic studies, but different disciplines within Islamic Mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. And it was also a a working mosque. So there was prayer five times a day, and um, there was very much of a sense of immersion in this really unusual community because it wasn't just the locals living there it was also all these people who had been brought in yeah and it was really important to me because i got to see a whole variety of ways of of worshiping and i also got to participate in a way that some countries and communities would not have allowed so we broke for each prayer and I spent, I I punctuated my day with prayer throughout the two weeks I was with these folks and it was very powerful for me. A lot of my assumptions were kind of blown out of the water. The assumption, for example, that by definition segregating women in a a place of prayer was a bad thing. Mm -hmm. We were given the opportunity sometimes to go into the main part of the mosque but most of us preferred to be in the women's section. And I hadn't really thought about the power of sisterhood until I had that experience of kind of a dimly lit, relatively small place, earthen floor, and a bunch of women moving in prayer simultaneously. I I think the first time I did that, I started to cry because it was just so moving and I felt Mm -hmm. so connected to these people in a way that I... I didn't even in my own church community feel like that. 
And that was really helpful to me. Um, I'm not suggesting that exclusion is a good thing, yeah. but segregation always sounds like such a negative. And in fact, to me, that particular experience was integration. Yeah. yeah. Also, segregation just has so many negative connotations like throughout everything, but there's different types of it too, like you said. Mm-hmm. The other thing about it was like, uh, I grew up in New York City and um, some of the neighborhoods I was in were pretty rough and there wasn't a lot of police presence and you bring up together a whole bunch of different people they have definitely different ideas about what's Mm -hmm. appropriate and as a young woman I was assaulted you know molested lots and that was another kind of revelation again I'd been kind of schooled to think that there was something weird about Muslims and blah 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 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I actually appreciated the fact that these men I didn't know well gave me a certain amount of room. I mean, it was very clear that they all had a specific distance that they yeah, thought was yeah. appropriate, and they didn't enter into it unless asked. Mm-hmm. And having mm-hmm. had those experiences, it was kind of nice to see somebody try to show respect. I mean, 2.30 in the morning, I'm in the library with a strange man. Nobody else is around. Everybody else with any mm-hmm. sense is asleep. Yeah. And he stood behind a halfway up bookshelf so that I wouldn't feel nervous around him because we didn't know each other well enough and I was kind of like well this is a different takeaway than I was told to expect we're still having this camaraderie we're still having this intellectual discussion I feel perfectly safe and he's making sure that that's the case and I didn't feel demeaned by it at all that's so interesting because that's like always seems such a negative but like especially like in that situation like that's people just don't have good experiences I think that's interesting especially and also there aren't a lot of voices saying this like out there like you just see the completely opposite Mm -hmm. narrative yeah the opposite narrative like people travel to muslim majority countries they have the completely opposite experience and that's the one that's published that's one that's like shown around everywhere yeah which is annoying so i guess kind of segueing into that one of the major things you've studied is islam and like islamic studies so what got you interested in that um, I guess what's what's the origin story there or yeah uh, it, it's rooted in prejudice uh, mm-hmm. I am not a really good hater although my culture often teaches me to be and so initially 1979 the crazy Iranians have seized the American embassy and we did nothing wrong and what are they doing and they've got all of our people and 444 days of non-stop coverage letting us know that the Iranians were in fact crazy and there was no backstory to this whole thing that just came out of nowhere, a bunch of violent screaming people saying death to America, mm-hmm. calling us the great Satan, and mm-hmm. I, uh, it was so bad I was at a party and would I could not get myself to sit next to the one Iranian kid in the room because I was so disgusted. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point I was kind of like okay well you can keep at this mm-hmm. and you know join in this basic hate frenzy or you could maybe try to figure out what's going on and so I first started studying Iran that was my point of interest and then oddly I my first marriage was to a guy whose dad is an Iranian expert mm-hmm. and uh, he still runs one of the best research sites uh, in the world <laughs> 
So I had really interesting conversations about that with him. And then as the Iraq war unfolded, you know, I got to ask all sorts yeah. of questions and dinner time was pretty informative at their mm -hmm. house. And I got to have a lot broader vision of what all of that was about. They had lived in Egypt and mm -hmm. uh, had had a lot of experiences. They were actually deported is the wrong word. They were evacuated, there we go, <laughs> during the 1967 war yeah. because it wasn't safe for them. So my world just got a lot bigger and I'm pleased with myself that I allowed that to happen because I'm mm -hmm. sure there are a lot of other blind spots that I have, but I definitely got a lot out of opening up. And then the places I've traveled for the most part are majority Muslim countries and mm -hmm. I think starting with a basic assumption of I don't know a whole heck of a lot and mm -hmm. there are going to be good people everywhere I go. Yeah. Those are two pretty basic assumptions. When they sent me from the mosque, I went back to the New Mexico mosque a second mm -hmm. time and then and I was leaving to go to Cairo and it was my first mm -hmm. trip and I was going by myself and <laughs> all the professors had taken me aside to give me warnings about how I should conduct yeah. myself, at, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. so it was kind of hilarious. And so I was scared, like nobody's business when I got there and my pickup wasn't there. There had been some confusion and there was nobody there to help me figure out. And it, it became this hilarious story later. <laughs> at the time it wasn't so hilarious, but it was funny later. But one piece of advice that they'd given me that was not about rushing straight to the embassy if I wasn't getting picked up within five minutes, <laughs> which was ridiculous, um, was, you know, how do you get into a mosque if it's making, you know, Muslims uncomfortable that you're a non-Muslim coming into a mosque? And I, of course, knew how to cover my head and do all this yeah. stuff because mm -hmm. I'd been doing it for weeks. But yeah. um, one of the professors said, well, just tell them that you love God and you're there to be with God. And so a guard was kind of giving me a weird look because mm -hmm. I was clearly a foreigner. And uh, I said exactly that. And she got so touched, she actually puddled up. She wow. And, you know, she she just kind of adjusted my headscarf and was just so happy to have me come in. And I was like, well, this really is God's house. Thank you for, yeah. thank you for letting me in. And it was, again, it was different because I was primed differently. Yeah. I was expecting her to greet me with affection. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. All right, so that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for that. That was fun. Yeah. All right, and we'll be back next week. We'll be back next week with a new podcast episodes, and make sure to like and subscribe, subscribe on, on Facebook and Instagram. So awesome. thank, thank you. you.